This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's March 2018, and we're beginning a new series, Unusual Criminal Defenses. When a person is charged with a serious crime, like murder, and their guilt is not in question, the only option sometimes left to their defense attorney is to come up with a good reason they committed the crime. Common defenses for murder charges are things like self-defense or it was an unintended accident. But some defenses that have been used, and sometimes successfully, can be quite, shall we say, creative. In this series, I will detail the crimes committed, as well as the unusual defenses that have been used in court to try and mitigate the perpetrator's guilt. I think you'll find these cases strange and fascinating. In our first chapter, I'll tell you about a very interesting defense that has actually been around for a very long time. In fact, it's a defense that has been employed to explain murder as far back as 1846. I'll tell you about that case briefly, and then outline two other murders where the sleepwalking defense has been used in 1987 and then a decade later in 1997. This is Chapter 1 of Unusual Criminal Defenses, The Sleepwalking Defense. In 1846, sleepwalking, then commonly known as somnambulism, was used as a defense in a sensational murder trial. Albert Terrell, age 22, was accused of murdering 21-year-old Marianne Bickford. Bickford was found clad in her nightgown in a house of ill repute located in Boston's Beacon Hill neighborhood. Her throat had been slashed, and she was nearly decapitated. A fire had been set to the room, in the very bed where she was found. Her body bore burn marks from the blaze as well. A bloody razor was found near the bed, as well as a man's bloody vest. Bickford was known to be the mistress of Albert Terrell. He had been seen with her earlier that evening, but at the time of her discovery, he was missing. Terrell had left the city of Boston and traveled to the town of Weymouth, some 30 minutes to the south, where he had family. By this time, he knew the police were looking for him, and he hid out with his relatives, who provided him with funds to flee north to Canada. He planned to sail to England, but when the voyage was scrapped due to bad weather, he decided to take a boat to New Orleans instead. Over a month after the murder, Terrell was finally intercepted by police in Louisiana. Albert Terrell was wealthy, and so was able to hire a skilled defense attorney. Terrell had already been brought before the courts a year earlier on adultery charges for his relationship with young Mary Bickford. Terrell was a married father of two. Mary Bickford was also married. She'd wed at the age of 16, and after her baby died soon after its birth, she left for a short trip from her home in Bangor, Maine, to Boston with friends who were trying to cheer her up. Mary got a taste of the big city and told her husband she did not want to return to Maine. She worked in the city's brothels until meeting Terrell, who began a relationship with her. They often traveled together and presented themselves as man and wife, even though many people knew the true situation. He was a cheating husband, and Mary was his mistress. Many also knew that Terrell and Bickford had a volatile relationship. Mary confided to friends that she enjoyed the fighting because, quote, they had just a good time making up. So Terrell was, of course, the first suspect when Mary was found murdered. His flight from the city pretty much sealed his guilt in the eyes of the law. 
But Terrell was able to hire one of the most well-known and successful defense attorneys of the day, Rufus Choate. Choate, the story goes, came up with the defense that his client was in a somnambulistic trance and did not know what he was doing on the night of Mary's murder after reading a novel called Sylvester Sound, The Somnambulist, while preparing to defend his client. The defense strategy was two-pronged. First, by assassinating the character of Mary Bickford as a wanton woman who had left a good man to live the wild life trading sex for money in the big city. Terrell, in contrast, was painted as a good, upstanding husband and father until he was corrupted by Mary and seduced by her wiles. The defense even posited that the deep gash in Mary's throat was self-inflicted. Terrell's counsel said that suicide was, quote, almost the natural death of persons of her character. But the icing on this disgusting cake was the claim that if Terrell had murdered Mary, he did it unconsciously. His family was called to the stand to testify about his history of sleepwalking. Remember, this is the family that hid him from the cops and gave him money to flee the country. They said his sleepwalking had begun at the age of six and gotten worse over the years. He would cause destruction while in a trance-like state, ripping down curtains and smashing windows, and had even attacked a cousin, throwing him to the floor and threatening him with a knife while in a sleep-like trance. The defense called an expert from Harvard Medical School to the stand to say that it was completely plausible that Terrell could have performed all the acts for which he was accused, committing a murder, setting a fire, and making his escape while asleep. After only two hours, the jury returned a not guilty verdict, and Terrell was set free. How did he reward his attorney, Choate, for winning his case and his freedom? He asked him to return half of the legal fees he'd paid to him. After all, he said, it hadn't been that difficult for the jury to decide he was innocent. What a guy. You might think, okay, Maybe that crazy defense worked in 1846, but we're much more savvy today. That couldn't possibly work now. Well, we'll fast forward 120 years later to find out. Kenneth Parks was a 23-year-old electric company employee in 1987. He had a wife, Karen, and a five-month-old daughter. They lived in Pickering, Ontario, Canada. May 24, 1987 was a Sunday. The next day was Victoria Day, a holiday so the family was enjoying a long weekend. The next day, they had plans to go to Karen's parents for a barbecue, or cookout, as it's called in other regions. Kenneth had also promised to fix his in-law's furnace. Kenneth and his in-laws had a close relationship. When he'd first met his wife, Karen, she'd been a teenage runaway. It was Kenneth who convinced the girl to return home and work out things with her parents. She did so, and she and Kenneth eventually married. Karen's parents, Barbara Ann and Dennis, had always been grateful to him for convincing their daughter to come home. They considered him like their own son, and Barbara Ann even called her 6-foot, 5-inch, 280-pound son-in-law her gentle giant. Kenneth Parks had been battling insomnia. Several hours after falling asleep on the night of May 24th, Parks rose, grabbed his keys, got into his car, and drove 23 kilometers, or approximately 14 miles, to Scarborough, where his in-laws lived. Once he arrived at their townhouse, he took out the key to their home that he'd been given. He entered through the garage, picking up a tire iron on the way, although some accounts say that the tire iron was taken from the trunk of his own car. It was the early morning hours, and once inside, he proceeded to Barbara Ann and Dennis's bedroom, where they were asleep. 
he hit his mother-in-law over the head with a tire iron and then strangled his father-in-law until he was unconscious. He then began stabbing them both with the kitchen knife. From where he produced the knife is not explained in the records. Barbara Ann received six stab wounds through her chest, one in her shoulder, and one fatal stab wound to the heart. She was found dead in another room, several feet away from her own bedroom. Dennis was also severely wounded, but would survive. The Woods' two teenage daughters were asleep upstairs. They heard Parks outside their door, but he didn't say anything. They would later report that they only heard an animal-like grunting sound. They heard the strange sound a second time, before hearing the footsteps recede and head down the stairs. At 4.45 a.m., Parks arrived at the police station. He was covered in blood. He walked in and reported, rambling, I just killed someone with my bare hands. Oh my God. I just killed someone. I've just killed two people. My God. I've just killed two people with my hands. My God. I've just killed two people. My hands. I, I just killed two people. I killed them. I, I just killed two people. I've just killed my mother and father-in-law. I stabbed and beat them to death. It's all my fault. The police officers noted that he seemed very distressed and was shaking. As well, he had cuts to his hands. He had cut the tendons across both sets of fingers on the inside of his hands and was bleeding profusely. However, he did not seem to be in any pain and didn't even seem to notice his injuries. Kenneth Parks was charged with the murder of his mother-in-law, Barbara Ann Woods, and the assault on his father-in-law, Dennis. But it was clear from the very beginning that possibly something very odd had taken place that night. It would be a puzzle that would have to be put together piece by piece to determine if Parks had deliberately set out to kill his in-laws, as the prosecution would try and prove, or if he had done so unconsciously, while sleepwalking, as his defense would claim. The term parasomnia refers to involuntary behaviors that people act out while sleeping. Park's defense attorney would tell the court that his client should not be held legally responsible for the attacks on his in-laws since they had occurred while Parks was in a sleep-like state. Like Terrell's lawyer had argued over 120 years earlier, Park's attorney, Marley's Edwards, would lay out a sleepwalking defense for his client. To prove his claim, he had Parks undergo sleep and psychological testing while awaiting trial. He was hooked to a machine that would record his brain activity while he slept. The results showed some abnormal brain activity during deep sleep that the defense pointed to as indicative of parasomnia. Sleepwalking occurs during the time when a person is in a state of deep sleep, when brain waves slow. Due to this slowing of brain waves, we are not conscious of stimuli from our surroundings. When we sleep, typically, input to the brain is blocked, so the messages aren't sent to the body's motor system. However, in parasomnia, this blocking does not occur, so the brain gives commands to the muscles while still in a state of deep sleep. This is how a person can sleepwalk without being conscious that they are doing so. Sleepwalkers do have their eyes open and can see what is around them, but not consciously. It is a strange phenomenon of both being awake and asleep at the same time. But while a sleepwalker can process both visual and auditory stimuli, the brain signals are not as strong. So a person can only perform actions they are very familiar with, 
such as navigating their own home, performing tasks they do frequently, etc. When they are in unfamiliar surroundings, they may bump into walls, trip over objects, or walk into closets, or otherwise become confused. The prosecution tried to show that it would be highly unlikely that Parks could have performed such a series of complex behaviors if he was indeed asleep. For one thing, the act of getting into his car and driving several miles to his in-law's house would be a highly difficult task to complete. The defense, however, would point out that Parks was very familiar with the drive to his in-laws, having completed it hundreds of times. To counter this, the prosecution presented evidence that Parks had not been to the Woods' house in over two months. Would he still be able to drive there automatically if he was in a sleep state, they asked the jury? They believed it was unlikely. Parks' attorney also stressed that he'd had plans to go to his in-laws' home the next day, and in a sleep state may have thought he was on his way there for the barbecue. The plans he had to work on his in-laws' furnace had also been on his mind, they told the court. He'd been talking about it with his wife earlier in the day, before the attack. They also pointed out that when he left his house, he left both the garage door and the front door wide open. Not something you do if you are fully awake and conscious of your actions, they pointed out. Park's attorney also explained his family history of sleepwalking and parasomnia for the jury. Park's mother testified that her son had been a sleepwalker all of his life. When he was a child, she'd found him trying to go out of a window, and they lived on the sixth floor. She'd stopped him before he fell. Park's grandfather also had a history of sleepwalking. He'd cook entire meals while asleep, although he never ate them. However, Park's wife said she'd never observed him sleepwalking, but he did talk in his sleep, and it was difficult to wake him, she admitted. The defense also explained that Parks had been severely sleep-deprived due to his insomnia. As a matter of fact, they said, he'd slept very little in the 48 hours prior to the murder. But this point played into the prosecution's case as well. Kenneth Parks' life wasn't as rosy as things looked to outsiders they'd uncovered, and they theorized that the murder was in response to Kenneth Parks' life spinning out of control. Kenneth Parks was in severe financial trouble at the time he attacked his in-laws. The summer before, he'd begun betting on horse races and ended up deeply in debt. He kept the secret from everyone, including his wife. To cover his gambling debts, he embezzled over $32,000 from his employer. But he continued to place bets, trying to win back the money he'd lost. He'd lost even more money. He then took money out of the family's savings again without his wife's knowledge, and also borrowed from a loan company. He kept betting and losing all the money he had. It wasn't until his employer discovered the theft and fired him in March that his wife became aware of the dire financial straits they were in. Not only was their savings gone, but the now unemployed Parks was ordered to pay restitution to his employer. He was arrested and charged with fraud, but was out on bail at the time of the murder. He and Karen fought about his gambling addiction, and she gave him an ultimatum. He either began attending Gamblers Anonymous to get his addiction under control and stop placing bets, or she would divorce him. He had been sleeping on the couch in the weeks prior to May 24th. But that night, Karen had told him he could come back to sleep in his own bed. They had planned to use the barbecue at Karen's parents the next day for Kenneth to come clean to his in-laws about his gambling, his job loss, and his legal problems. 
Parks declined to sleep in the bedroom, saying he would rather continue to sleep on the couch until he'd gotten help to quit gambling. And also, he wasn't tired, he told her. So Karen went to bed while Kenneth stayed in the living room. This, the prosecution theorized, was the reason Parks went to his in-laws' home and attacked them. He would rather have his in-laws dead than face the shame of what they would think of him when they found out about his gambling and theft charges. They'd always seen him as the ideal husband and son-in-law, and he couldn't bear the shame. He used his family history of sleepwalking to try and explain away his actions. And there were other problems with his story, the prosecution told the court. They didn't believe his account that he continued to be asleep through the entire violent struggle with his in-laws. The scene made it clear that the Woods had fought for their lives. The mattress was askew, the headboard tipped forward, and Barbara Ann was found in a completely different room, having apparently fled trying to save herself. It was hard to imagine that with all that struggle and the Woods screaming as they fought off their attacker, Parks would not have woken up. Most violent acts during sleepwalking are attributed to a startle reflex. Something or someone comes upon the sleeping individual, and startled, they lash out. But the attack on the woods was something completely different. Parks had brought a tire iron into the house and set out to attack a sleeping couple. There was no startle reflex to blame. He also had to navigate 23 kilometers of roads, traffic lights, and intersections to get to the woods' townhouse. Even without traffic, it would take him approximately 15 minutes to drive there from his home. How did he not wake up in all that time, they asked. The defense claimed that Parks was experiencing dissociative analgesia, which is why he did not feel the painful cuts on his hands. Simply put, in this state, signals from the unconscious mind are blocked from the body. The prosecution countered that Parks' non-response to pain could be explained by other causes, such as being in shock, or under great distress, something you certainly might experience if you knew you just murdered your in-laws, they explained. At trial, Parks would say that he fell asleep on the couch after midnight and didn't remember anything until he found himself in the police station covered in blood. But he would also say that he'd remembered, as if in a fog, the sad face of his mother-in-law, Barbara Ann. He said he remembered her looking at him. Her eyes and mouth were both open. He also remembered the girls yelling upstairs and going up to calm them down. He remembered saying to them, kids, kids, kids. But as I explained earlier, they reported hearing only grunting sounds coming from parks, no words. In a 2012 article in Psychology Today titled Sleep Driving and Sleep Killing by Dr. Barrett Brogard and Christian Marlowe, they write, this is very odd. If Kenneth had really been sleepwalking at the time at which the kids were yelling, he would not have been able to recall the moment so clearly afterwards. If, on the other hand, he was awake at the time, then he wouldn't have made the grunting noises. He would have yelled just as he remembered he did. So Parks may have been in a state that was partially conscious and partially unconscious. Perhaps in this state, he had an idea to hurt his in-laws and acted upon it, but would not or could not have done so if he'd been fully conscious. I kind of think of it like when you're angry at someone and in your dreams you play out a scenario where you hurt them in some way, maybe even physically. But you know that you would never do that in real life. You just wouldn't be capable of it. The defense wrapped up their case by stating that what happened that night was a perfect storm of stress that caused Parks to unconsciously attack the woods. 
He had emotional conflicts from his life, including losing his father at a young age. After his parents' divorce when he was five years old, he had no further contact with his father until he was an adult. And at the age of 16, his mother moved away, leaving him with his grandparents. He was also under financial and marital stress due to his gambling. The gambling itself, his attorneys would claim, was an indication of his problems with impulse control, something that may have played out in his unconscious state. As well, he was in poor health, having slept very little due to his insomnia and a recent weight gain from 240 to 310 pounds. He also suffered from headaches, and his latest and most severe health issue was waking up with shortness of breath and a feeling of heaviness in his chest. He was diagnosed with asthma and given medication, but these symptoms could also be caused by an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. Finally, they pointed to his confused state when he'd arrived at the police station, as well as the dissociative analgesia regarding the serious wounds on his hands. They felt this was their strongest evidence that Kenneth Parks was in a sleepwalking state and could not have consciously planned to murder his in-laws. And he had no reason to do so, they said. He had a close and loving relationship with Barbara Ann and Dennis Woods. The jury agreed. He was acquitted of the murder and the assault on his father-in-law. They agreed that it was a series of factors that caused his actions and believed these specific factors could not occur again. He also didn't fit the category of legally insane, so incarceration in a psychiatric facility also wasn't required. He walked out of court a free man. However, he still had to answer for the embezzlement from his employer. He pled guilty to fraud charges and received a three-month suspended sentence. He sold his house in order to make restitution to his employer. Kenneth Parks was treated for his sleep disorder and never had another occurrence of sleepwalking. His wife, Karen, remained behind him throughout his trial. She believed that her mother's death was a tragic accident. The Parks remained married and had six children together. They would eventually divorce when, reportedly, Kenneth Parks began gambling again. In Canada, the government is allowed to appeal the not guilty decision, which they did, and in 1992, the Canadian Supreme Court upheld Parks' acquittal. In 2006, Ken Parks ran for trustee of the Durham School Board. He had remained a controversial figure, with many still believing he should have been found guilty of the second-degree murder of Barbara Ann Woods. Citizens in Durham criticized him for running for a government position with a murder charge and a fraud conviction in his past. My first concern would be a lack of ethics and a lack of professionalism on somebody who is representing our school board, Professor Anne Lesage told the Toronto City News. Kenneth Park's acquittal in 1989 was the first successful use of the sleepwalking defense in Canadian legal history. Some believed it was this case that spurred another man, 10 years later, to use this defense to explain the brutal killing of his wife. But others would say Scott Falader had no motivation to kill his wife of 21 years. You can decide for yourself. Scott Falader was 41 years old in 1997. He and his wife, Yarmila, had been high school sweethearts and married in 1976. They had two children, a daughter and a son, now both teenagers. Scott worked as a products engineer for Motorola, and Yarmila was a preschool teacher's aide. Scott was also a devout Mormon and very active in his church. The family lived in Phoenix, Arizona. 
On the night of January 16, 1997, Scott and Yarmila's next-door neighbor, Greg Coons, and his girlfriend, Stephanie Reedhead, heard some loud noises coming from their neighbor's backyard around 10 p.m. When Coons opened his back door, he heard screaming coming from over the fence and peered over to investigate. He saw movement. Someone had moved towards the back door and entered the house. He then saw Yarmila Falader lying on the ground a few feet from the swimming pool. He saw her roll over onto her back. She was moving her arms and legs. After a moment, she lay still. A light came on inside the house, and Coons could see Scott Falader in an upstairs window changing his shirt. He then saw him return downstairs and approach the back sliding glass door. The Falader's dog was barking, and Scott stopped to quiet the dog before going outside. Coons then saw his neighbor stand over his wife's body for a minute or two. Falader then went back inside the house. A few minutes later, he saw Scott come back out, emerging from the side of the garage. He was wearing gloves. He saw him drag his wife's body to the pool and push her in. He then saw Scott hold Yarmila's head underwater. He ran inside to call 911. When police arrived, Coons directed them to the backyard. They found Yarmila's body floating face down in the backyard swimming pool. They pulled her from the pool, but she was already dead. The officers saw a man dressed in a white t-shirt and pajama pants inside the house. They entered through the unlocked backsliding door, guns drawn. They told him to get on the ground, and then they handcuffed him. He asked what was going on. He seemed out of breath and shaky. They noticed bloodstains on his arm and behind his right ear as they cuffed him. Outside, police found a flashlight still on and pointed towards a pool pump. There was a large amount of blood on the ground near the pump. Inside the house, they found blood smeared on the stairs that led to the second floor. They also found a blood-stained pebble in the master bedroom. It was the same type of decorative rock they found near the pool. Scott Falader was arrested and taken to the police station for questioning. He said that his wife was watching the show ER on television in the living room when he'd gone up to bed around 10 p.m. The children had gone to bed about an hour earlier, he said. He didn't recall anything else until he heard the dog barking and the police bursting through the back door. Yarmila had been stabbed 44 times with a hunting knife. There were six wounds to her back, five in her neck, three in her abdomen, ten in her chest, six in the front of the neck, two near the left ear, and 12 defensive wounds to her hands. At least four wounds had been fatal, three to the lungs and one to her heart. Water was also found in her lungs, meaning she'd still been alive, if not conscious, when her husband held her head underwater. Detectives told Falader that they knew he had murdered his wife. His neighbor had witnessed him drowning her. Falader seemed confused and very distressed when he heard his wife was dead. He said he had absolutely no recollection of harming his wife. They had a good marriage, he said, and there was no reason he'd want to kill her. She was the only woman he'd ever dated or loved, he told them. He called her Yarm. Friends and family backed up his claims. Scott and Yarmila were not known to fight and had a peaceful marriage. There was no reports of domestic violence, or even any type of violence at all, in Scott's history. By all accounts, he was a mild-mannered family man and churchgoer. As a matter of fact, the only point of contention in their marriage seemed to be that Yarmila, who was not as actively involved in the family's religious life, 
reported her frustration that Scott spent so much time at church and church activities. Around the same time they got engaged, Scott had met a couple of Mormon missionaries and decided soon after to convert to the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yarmila had been raised Catholic, and she wasn't very keen on the idea. Scott would admit that she'd even threatened to break off their engagement, but they'd been able to work things out. They were married, and Yarmila accepted the fact that her husband wanted to follow the Mormon faith, but she herself did not want to be involved. She would make herself scarce when his Mormon friends came over, he said. Scott was disappointed, but hoped she would change her mind eventually. Scott said that he'd been led to the Mormon church, in large part because of their commitment to strong family values. He had been raised in a Catholic home, but his parents fought violently, and their home was far from peaceful. As the oldest of five children, his mother would say that the fighting bothered Scott the most. It was after a few years of marriage that Yarmila began to join Scott in attending church and learning about their adopted faith. Now with children to raise, she saw the value in following the church's teachings. She also liked how committed the Mormon men she knew, including her husband, were to their wives and families. Yarmila took religion classes and was baptized into the faith. His life was good, and he loved Yarmila, he told investigators. He couldn't believe he had killed his wife, but the evidence was irrefutable. If he had done it, he explained, he had no memory of it. Scott's mother, Lois Wilczek, had been present when his attorney, Mike Keimerer, questioned Scott's neighbor as to what he saw the night of Yarmila's murder. Lois had traveled to Phoenix to care for her grandchildren and also to try and figure out what had happened. Lois heard Coons tell Keimerer that her son's movements had been slow and deliberate and that, at one point, Scott turned in his direction as he watched him over the fence. He looked directly at him, Coons said, but didn't seem to register his presence. It was at this time that Scott's mother thought she might know what had happened. She told Keimer about Scott's history of sleepwalking during his youth. His sister would confirm this, sharing an incident that had occurred when Scott was a teen. She'd startled him while he was sleepwalking, and he'd thrown her across the room. He didn't seem to recognize her at all, and had a very scary look on his face, as she recalled. Scott would also describe times during his marriage when he would wake up and find himself on the floor, or downstairs sleeping in the living room, but couldn't remember how he'd gotten there. Now, it seems, the sleepwalking defense took shape. To test Scott's contention that he killed his wife while asleep, investigators sent him for a four-night study to the Sleep Disorder Service and Research Center. A study of his brainwaves while asleep showed abnormal patterns often found in sleepwalkers. But other reasons were found during the investigation that cast doubt on the sleepwalking excuse. First, the defense pointed to a possible motivation for Yarmila's murder. Scott had been pressing his wife to have more children. They had two children who were already in their teens, but Scott wanted a bigger family. Yarmila did not. It may have been for this reason, coupled with her tiring of Scott's time spent on church activities, that had prompted Yarmila to tell friends that she was considering divorce. They noted that she wasn't wearing her wedding ring on the night she died. Maybe Scott was angry with his wife and had gotten into an argument with her which had led to the attack. Long before, she had accepted and even joined Scott in church activities, but Scott admits that he would prioritize his church duties, including becoming a youth group leader, above time with his family. Another reason they didn't buy the sleepwalking excuse was the concealment of evidence. 
Between the time Scott threw his wife in the pool and the time the police arrived, Scott had taken the hunting knife used to stab Yarmila and his bloody clothes, sealed them in a plastic container, and placed them in the trunk of his car. Interestingly, the clothes they found were not pajamas, but jeans, socks, and a t-shirt. He would have had to get up, change out of his pajamas, get dressed, go outside with a flashlight and a knife, kill his wife, take his bloody clothes off, and stash them in the car before changing back into the pajama pants and t-shirt he was wearing when arrested. Quite a bit of planning and maneuvering by someone who was supposed to be sleepwalking, they thought. Scott went on trial for first-degree murder. His attorney brought in experts to back up their sleepwalking defense. Psychologist Rosalind Cartwright believed that the defendant had indeed been sleepwalking when he'd murdered his wife. Philauder stated that he had started working on a broken pool pump earlier that evening, but hadn't finished the job and it was on his mind before he'd gone to bed. Cartwright said that with this in his subconscious mind, he had taken the knife that he was going to use to cut a plastic ring on the pool pump and in a sleep state walked outside to the pool. Yarmila had gone out after him to see what he was doing and startled him, the psychologist theorized. This had precipitated the attack on her. The defense explained that Scott felt threatened when approached by his wife because the brain is not capable of facial recognition while in a sleepwalking state. He mistook her for an attacker and thought he was defending himself. They also provided testimony to show that Scott was sleep-deprived due to high stress at his job. He was heading a project that wasn't working out as expected. He felt the right thing to do would be to report to his boss that the project should be scrapped. However, he knew if he did so, it would mean a layoff and many employees on his team would be let go. The alternative was to not say anything, but that would mean more money and time would be spent before the project failed anyway. It weighed heavily on his mind. He'd asked his wife for her advice, and she had said to keep quiet about it and just let things play out, he said. Much like in Kenneth Park's trial, and by the way, Collotter's attorney hired one of the same sleep experts who'd helped get Parks acquitted, they laid out a case of the perfect storm for the sleepwalking defense, a history of sleepwalking, a period of high stress, and sleep deprivation. But unfortunately for Falauder, the person assigned as prosecutor on the case was none other than the tiny pit bull Juan Martinez. Martinez was known as a formidable opponent in homicide trials who had a fiery courtroom style. He would later go on to prominence as the prosecutor in the Jody Arias case for Maricopa County. He downplayed the defense's theory by first attacking the credibility of its experts. He noted that one of their own experts' explanations about the stashed bloody clothes was different from Falauder's own reasoning. The expert said that this would be a routine task that Falauder could do unconsciously since he kept clothes in his car that he would change into to do yard work. Falauder himself said that he kept clothes in his car for emergencies which would mean that he didn't access them often, if at all. Martinez called the state's own expert, Dr. Mark Pressman, who worked in the field of sleep disorders. He testified that several events during the night would have woken Falauder. The dog barking, the screams from his wife as he stabbed her, and the cold water from the pool. Any of these would have jolted him back into a conscious state. As for the dog... Remember, the neighbor said he witnessed Falauder calming the dog before he went back outside. Dr. Pressman said that the defendant would have had to be conscious and not in a sleepwalking state 
in order to be aware of the dog's barking. As well, investigators testified that Scott had not only changed his clothes, but also bandaged a cut on his hand before they arrived. Again, he would have had to be consciously aware that he was injured in order to perform this task. Remember, in the Kenneth Parks case, he did not even seem aware of the severe injuries on his own hand. It was not possible, they believed, that Flotter had remained asleep through all of these events. The state's expert also explained that the brain patterns found during the sleep study were not necessarily evidence of sleepwalking. The same patterns could be seen in individuals who experienced sleep apnea. The defense's theory of the case was that Flotter lured his wife outside and then attacked her with a knife. He then went upstairs to change, saw his hand was bleeding, and bandaged it. The neighbor reported seeing him standing over his wife's body before he pushed her into the pool. They theorized that he saw she was still breathing and then finished killing her by holding her head underwater until she drowned. They believed he planned to make it look like she had been attacked by a stranger and she would be found dead outside the following morning, probably by their children. He had gone upstairs to bed, but he knew the jig was up when the police came bursting through the door soon afterwards. His plan B was to pretend he'd been sleepwalking, the defense explained, perhaps hearing about the Parks case in Canada and how he had been acquitted. Pilater himself took the stand in his own defense. He said, I assume I must have gone crazy. Something in my head had broken. But the jury didn't buy it. They found him guilty of first-degree murder after deliberating for just eight hours. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility for parole. The judge decided against sentencing Falada to death, citing his lack of history of violence. Both his son and daughter, aged 15 and 18, asked for his life to be spared in the sentencing phase. They continued to stay in contact with their father. Yarmila's mother also spoke in her son-in-law's behalf, saying that her grandchildren should have the opportunity to continue a relationship with their father. His family continues to support him, believing his claim that he was asleep and never intended to kill his wife. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be back with another crazy defense case next week. I want to thank Stephen from the podcast Trace Evidence, who acted out the part of Kenneth Parks. Trace Evidence is a podcast that focuses on unsolved cases, from murders and missing persons to the unexplained. It's a really quality podcast, and I think you'll love it. Check it out. Look for it under Trace Evidence wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Stephen. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing social media assistant is Nancy Chen, and our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>